Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, March 30th, 2016. little tune, isn't it? Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, Help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there by the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those who we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose small group curriculum we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. Mm -hmm. Over and again, we demonstrate here at Fighting for the Faith, there is a lot of Bible twisting going on, and a lot of people generally teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach, and leading people astray. And believe me when I tell you, you know, this is one of the things I say from time to time here at Fighting for the Faith is that the truth of what Scripture says is so much better. And I mean this, more comforting, more assuring, more amazing than what so many people out there are preaching and teaching. Case in point, over and again, we are hearing from the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, and you get the point. What we're hearing from them is that God has a a unique dream destiny thingy that he's calling you to, to which I say, pa, yeah, no, that what you're preaching there is a bunch of narcissistic nonsense. And so we've been working our way on Wednesdays through the book of Ecclesiastes with Pastor Jeremy Rohde of Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. And as he's been working his way through the book of Ecclesiastes, we're up to chapter 7, verses 12 through 17 today. Well, this whole concept of a dream destiny thingy, um, well, that's just been utterly destroyed. And the book of Ecclesiastes is a book that is going to soberly teach you the truth about, well, what's going on in this life and what our real hope is. And it's not in what so many people would have you think. And so with that, we're going to get into our next installment. Here again is Pastor Jeremy Rohde as he's working his way through the book of Ecclesiastes. Here we go. Good morning, everyone. 
Welcome back to Ecclesiastes after our long break. We've forgotten everything we previously knew, but we will recall it this week. So, just to give us, uh, uh, again, to zoom out and have an overarching view, we are in the meandering part of Ecclesiastes, and I've read it argued that that's intentional, that uh, he means to show by sort of a random collection of wisdom sayings that are hard to piece together any order, it's as if art is imitating life. Life tends to be a series of episodes that um, can be confusing and don't seem to always go together or fit a theme and sometimes trail off into nowhere and then start new and fresh and those trail off to nowhere. In other words, life meanders and Ecclesiastes meanders. We left off uh, somewhere in the middle of chapter 7, and we had discussed the section on wisdom, uh, looking at, um, for example, chapter 7, verse 10 through 13. And in this section of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is doing something that he very commonly does, one of, one of the themes I would argue that it's a sub-theme of the book, is that the middle way is the best way to avoid excess. um, The analogy that I think Luther used is that human nature is like a drunken monk riding on a donkey down a windy road. And we are always, in our drunkenness, tilting over to one side... (laughs) correcting ourselves and tilting over to the other side, always in danger of falling into one extreme or the other. And so Solomon spends a lot of time saying, uh, look, wisdom is preferable to foolishness, right? So don't fall off into wisdom doesn't matter because you know whether you're wise or a fool, you're going to die, so wisdom doesn't matter. Uh, don't fall completely into that ditch. Wisdom is preferable to folly, And yet then don't deify wisdom in the pursuit of wisdom as if it were the end-all, be-all, the answer, the meaning of life. That would be to fall in the opposite ditch. So Solomon is constantly saying, look, it's all meaningless. That puts us away from the deification of the pursuits. And yet there is value and much more enjoyment in pursuing wisdom as opposed to foolishness or righteousness as opposed to immorality or oppression, um, serving others as opposed to serving strictly oneself, even religion as opposed to atheism. These would be better ways. Okay, so um, we've seen, uh, you know, again from the overarching view, just kind of reorienting ourselves, we've seen Solomon argue... um, that he's tried various pursuits. He's tried the pursuit of wisdom, gaining wisdom and knowledge. He's tried the pursuit of uh, pleasure, seeking fat meats and fine wines, wine, women, and song. (laughs) He's tried pleasure. He's tried greatness, building for himself a great and wonderful kingdom, monuments, things that will last. He's tried philanthropy, serving humanity. Looking out for the greatest good of others. And he's tried religion. And he's found that 
in and of themselves, none of these things give life the fullness of meaning and purpose. Okay? The all is vanity, the all is meaningless. That's how he begins the book, that's how he ends the book. That's his point, is there has to be something else. There has to be something else. Now we know what that something else is. It's Christ. When he complains that there's nothing new under the sun, that's right, right up until God becomes human flesh. That's new. Right? That is a new thing under the sun. When God has become human flesh. That's why it's the dawn of a new creation. That's why Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. Why Paul says, What matters is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Okay, so the whole point of Ecclesiastes is there has to be more to which God in human flesh says there is. You're one of the few that caught my Christmas Day sermon. You know what I'm talking about. Um, the Word became flesh, and the Word in Greek is halagos, and that could just as easily be translated as the meaning. The meaning. The meaning became flesh. So where do we find the meaning and purpose in life? Only in relationship to Christ. Now that's going to take on the unique forms of your vocation. And it's also going to take on the shape of his cross. He doesn't say, whoever wants to follow me, take up your suntan lotion, we're heading to the beach. Whoever wants to follow me must take up his cross. Okay, so off you go into work tomorrow morning, Monday morning, and you see, because you've been taught by Ecclesiastes, by Solomon, you see the one world, the world of meaninglessness, the world of futility, the world of none of this really matters. Yet you remember that the meaning has become flesh. And that changes everything. Behold, I am making all things new, even your Monday morning. And so you begin to see it new in light of Christ. And again, that's going to take on the shape of the cross. You're going to suffer to do what's right. You're going to suffer to serve your neighbor. Just as Christ lays down his life for ungrateful, uncaring, uninterested people, so also we are called to lay down our lives for those around us. It takes on the concreteness and uniqueness of your own vocation, the people around you, the people you work with, the people you work for, the customers you serve. Right? takes on the, create, the, the unique shape of your family. So we, sh- we share commonality in so many ways. Uh, the word, the meaning has become flesh. That's for all of us. He's become flesh not to like come down, become flesh, take his flesh up into heaven and then be away from us forever. He says, lo, I am with you always. So he manifests himself to us in the same ways. Wherever his word is preached, there he is. Whoever hears you, hears me, he says. Wherever his sacraments are administered, it's he who is baptizing through the pastor. It's he who is communing. Okay, so in other words, there's commonality to how the meaning, Christ himself, not an idea, not a philosophy, but Christ himself, a person, the meaning comes into you, invades your life, has a relationship with you. Okay? That's common to all of us. But then it's going to take on the unique contours of your life and your vocation because, obviously, we're not all the same. We're not all, we're not all uh, given the same gifts or talents. Uh, we're, not, we're not all called to the same vocational circumstances. 
Some are married, some aren't, some have kids, some don't. It's going to take on the unique shape and form. But that's where Ecclesiastes is so important because it sets you up and prepares you for that reality. To understand the profundity of the meaning the Word has become flesh. To understand the profundity of the fact that Christ incarnate, breaking into time and space, is reshaping everything and it's already begun. That's why if you uh, have already been to church or if you're going, uh, pay special attention to the epistle lesson, Romans 6. Paul grounds this in baptism. We've been buried with Him in order that we might also be raised with Him and walk in newness of life. And when are we supposed to walk in newness of life? Now! Don't wait to walk in newness of life when you get to heaven or in the resurrection of your body. Walk in newness of life now. See, the meaning has invaded our world, has broken into our world, and it's changing everything. Now, that's accessible only to the eyes of faith. If you want to say, I don't believe any of that, then you're back only in the realm of Ecclesiastes and you're groping for things that will give your life meaning. And and Solomon is trying to save you a lot of time and say, been there, done that. It doesn't pan out. Make a U-turn. Go back and look again. You need a meaning other than that which is under the sun, namely the meaning which becomes flesh in Christ Jesus. Okay, so this is the weird way in which Ecclesiastes while properly speaking, is negative and is law and is about knocking down idols, it yet is doing this all in service of Christ and the gospel and what's coming. To go all the way back to the beginning, Ecclesiastes is the question to which Christ is the answer. And the more thoroughly you understand the contours of the question, the more thoroughly you'll see how God's answer in Christ Jesus fits. And again, recall that this answer in Christ Jesus isn't a simplistic one. It's not like Ecclesiastes poses a problem, what is two plus two, and Christ in the flesh says it's four, that's it. Put both aside, you've solved it. Rather, Ecclesiastes walks with you, as does Christ, both speaking... Ecclesiastes, asking the question, asking the question, asking the question, and all its multiformity in your own life and specific circumstances. And Christ gives the answer in all the differences and dynamics of your life as you engage Him concretely in the divine service, as you hear His Word, as He walks with you. Okay, And so that is then the essence, the purpose, the reason for studying Ecclesiastes. When you go out and you find people who don't know of Christ or don't believe in Christ, they're living in the world in which Ecclesiastes describes, but probably the majority of them don't get Ecclesiastes' message. They think or they're trying through the pursuits to find the meaning of it all. And I don't mean to belittle people, um, but you, but you can begin to see this. Well, that's well. his pursuit's pleasure. Look on his Facebook. He posts his sushi dinner and this dinner and that dinner and this bottle of wine and that sunset, and that's all he posts. He's pursuing pleasure. That's what he's doing. Now, if he doesn't know Christ, then, then he's trying to find meaning there. Now, is there anything wrong with that in itself? No. 
And that's why I say I don't mean to belittle people. It's a pursuit. It's what you do. It's great. But you're not going to find the meaning there. The meaning can only be be found in the Word, the meaning, become flesh, Christ Jesus, and in a living, breathing relationship with Him. That's the point. Okay, so Ecclesiastes is not only just about you and your perspective, but it's about better understanding your neighbors and where they are. If you will, what delusions they're suffering from. And as well as Ecclesiastes shines light on the delusions that each one of us personally suffers from, you start to see it shed light on those around you, and you come to better understand them. Why is it that, you know, my, uh, you know, why, uh, wife thinks, why is it that my husband has a closet full of sports that he's tried and never done again? You know, there is, there's the hockey equipment. That was one kick. Okay. There's the uh, lacrosse equipment. There's the basketball equipment. There's the gym rotting in the garage. Okay. Um, then he moved on. There's the archery equipment. Then he moved on to something else. Right, and it's just a collection of spent hobbies. Well, in light of Ecclesiastes, you start to understand that. Looking for something. Looking for something and not having it fulfilled. Thinking it's here, thinking it's here, thinking it's here. Nothing wrong in that pursuit. Nothing wrong with enjoying those things. Nothing wrong with being a serial sports fan or a serial hobbyist. One thing after another. Okay, As long as one comes to realize the fulfillment is going to be found in a living relationship with the one who dwells with us, which is the essence of Christianity. It's not Christ up there or Christ in the future. It's Christ right here, right now. The divine one serving us, divine service, goddess deeds, an encounter with the living Christ, veiled so that our senses can't perceive him, and yet accessible to faith, For his word tells us, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. He says to his pastors, He who hears you hears me. I came not to be served, but to serve. Okay. All right, well, that's an overview and hopefully a reorientation back to Ecclesiastes. Before we march on to the concrete uh, and get right back where we left off, are there any questions or comments? Anything I can clarify? Paula. Can we say that Christ sanctifies our senses in hearing the word, you know, the incarnation of Christ that we can see, or as John testifies, we touched him and we have communion. We are bathed in water and that sanctifies our senses that God created us as he gave them to us. Yeah, we have beheld his glory, glory of the only, as of the only son of the begotten father, right? So that sort of thing is very true for us, but only in the Lord's Supper. Um, for this reason, the early church put the Nunc Dimittis, the words of Simeon, in our liturgy. Um, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. Mine eyes have seen the salvation which you have uh, prepared for all people. Right? Okay, Simeon it receives Christ into the temple as a little baby, and he's holding him in his arms. This is the Word, this is God in flesh, this is the Messiah. And he says, my own eyes have seen. 
And the early church says, it's the same for us, not with our literal eyes, but with the eyes of faith, in the Lord's Supper. When we hold Christ in the sacrament, it's no different than holding God in human flesh. They're joined sacramentally with the bread and wine. And we, each and every one of us, are no different than Simeon in that respect. And so our own eyes see, our own eyes behold the, behold the glory. Um, of course, it's a hidden glory. It always is. Accessible only to faith. That's the fascinating thing about John's con, con, uh, conception of, or understanding of glory. If you study uh, John's Gospel, you'll find that what glory ultimately, ultimately means when Christ prays uh, to the Father, glorify your Son, or I have not yet been glorified, what he's ultimately talking about is his cross. To be glorified is to spend himself for the sake of us. To suffer, to have flesh torn, to have soul forsaken, to bow his head in death, out of love for his friends. Greater love has none other than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. That is glory. I'm glad you said that, Paul, because it resonates so well with how do we pursue glory? I want uh, other men, other people, to applaud what I've done. To see my gold star. You know, We're not really much different than we were in third grade. We're just grown up. We hide it under veils of sophistication. I want glory in the eyes of men. I want to be recognized. I want to be accomplished. I want people to look up to me. I want people to praise me. I, I, you know, of course I don't. I said, no, no. That wouldn't be humble. Uh, no, that's what all of us want. We just don't show it. We, all, we hide it under a veneer of uh, humility. and <clears throat> That's the human concept of glory. Glory. And the concept that Christ gives is totally different inverts, turns inside out, upends and completely redefines the idea of glory. That glory is to selflessly lay down one's life for another. And in fact, another who doesn't deserve it. Now that changes everything, doesn't it? Okay, That means the people that you relate with in your house, in your family, in your extended family, uh, in the schoolroom, the workroom, wherever you are, those people who annoy you and don't deserve your greeting, let alone that you would do anything for them, okay? undeserving, you're called to lay down your life for them, on behalf of them, okay? to serve them. That's what Christ has done. Okay, that's the way of the cross. That's take up your cross and follow me. It's not, you know, I mean, it has some application, but it's not so much I stubbed my toe today, I guess I got to bear my cross with Jesus. And what is the cross about? Giving yourself on behalf of others, even when that brings suffering to you. It's selflessness. It's giving. It's the essence of who God is. And we are called sons of God, daughters of God, children of God. And so we inherit who He is and what He is, and He is our identity. He's the one we look to. All right, so thank you for that, Paula. Any other questions or comments? Anything else I can help clarify before we move on? All right, so the middle ground of wisdom we've looked at sort of in uh, chapters 10, or excuse me, chapter 7, verses 10 uh, through 12.
For example, verse 12, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. Does money protect you? Definitely can, in some respects. You know? Um, it's one of the big complaints, isn't it? That the wealthy and or famous have uh, better lawyers and a little less justice rendered unto them. Okay, So... That's an advantage of wisdom. So don't despise wisdom, even though wisdom isn't the end-all, be-all. Don't despise it. It's a defense. In fact, its protection is like the protection of money. If you don't have wisdom, or excuse me, if you don't have money, get wisdom. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Okay? Wisdom will keep you out of trouble. Wisdom will help you preserve your life. Now, you can already see the limitations of that. Because there are times, you know, it'll help you preserve your life, but there are times where wisdom calls you to lay down your life, where wisdom incarnate, Christ our Lord, does lay down his life. Okay? But even so, that's not really Solomon's point. Solomon's point is simply to say, even though I've told you that wisdom is meaningless, ultimately, don't throw it away. <laughs> Keep it. In fact, wisdom ranks right up there with money. Some would say more. All right, now uh, verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Right? And the answer there, of course, is no one. Which is a reflection on the futility that we're subject to. And again, it strikes at the heart of everything that humanity and human nature thinks is its very best and highest virtues. Right? Humanity says, well, we don't need God. We don't really care. Believe in God, don't believe in God, whatever. We are going to solve world hunger. We are going to end war. We are going to use our wisdom to build a tower into the heavens. We are going to use our wisdom to create a utopia. We are going to use our wisdom to create a, a truly tolerant world. We are going to use our wisdom to fix all the ills that plague mankind. Uh, not long ago, Time Magazine had an article, uh, the end, and they posed the question, the end of death, question mark. Technology will one day undo death for us. See, our wisdom will undo all our ills, right? At which God sort of laughs in derision, as the Psalms would say. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? Okay. The weight that God has put on humanity and the curse, we aren't ever going to bench press back up. All right? It's there. And Jesus even comments on the poor you will always have. You ain't going to fix this. Okay? And if we could just fix this by force of will, by changing minds, by education, well, then Christ came for nothing. Right? The fact is we can't fix it. The fact is the world is irreparably broken. Sin and the curse have written itself so deeply into this world that this whole world must, along with Christ Jesus, be put to death and be resurrected and raised new. It's partially why God comes, why 
the Word comes and wraps Himself in flesh. He wraps Himself in the stuff of creation as if to unite Himself with it and drag it with Him to His cross and down into His tomb and then Easter morning to drag it with Him up and start pulling it up and through, making a new heavens and a new earth of which we are simply seeing a foretaste right now. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. The balance of today's lesson on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> And now, Max Holiday's Birdcage here proudly presents Sessions with Mildred. Um, Mr. Sunshine, your three o'clock appointment is here. Oh, good. Send them right on in. Will do, Mr. Sunshine. Oh, dear, I've completely forgotten who I'm meeting. Let's just see who it is. Let's see. Oh, yes. Uh, Mr. Brightweight was at one o'clock. Miss Woodhead was at two. And at three, we have... No. Hello. Ah! Oh dear, not again. Sorry about that. It was merely a reflex action. I'm trying to get that fixed. So, anyway. Why are you here today? I was assigned to you again after my attitude didn't improve last time. Did you forget already? It must be because you don't like me. Of course I don't! Uh, uh, hate you! Nobody hates you here! We all love it when you're not around! I, 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 I mean, uh... <laughs> Let's get down to business. We're here to discuss how you performed in our newest Lead Like Jesus program. I'll just pull up the complaint file here. (laughs) Let's start from the beginning. Approximately three hours later. So after you failed to walk on the lake, 
You then disappeared for two weeks and were luckily found by hikers in the mountain who claim they found you deliriously raving about how you refused to turn a rock into bread. Do you have anything to say for yourself? But I thought I was leading like Jesus, like you told me to. <sighs> I think you failed to see the purpose of this ministry outreach. There are a few accounts that even I can't even understand. Here, explain this one right here. Well, in Matthew 21, Jesus cursed a fig tree and it withered away because it didn't bear any fruit. So my neighbor down the street planted a lemon tree about three years ago, and I've never seen any lemons on it. So I walked over and cursed it, but it wouldn't die, so I used sulfuric acid instead. What are you doing to my tree? You maniac! Get out of my yard! Uh... What? Why is my tree melting? Sir, do you have a moment to talk about the Lead Like Jesus program? No, I don't have time to... Stop changing the subject! Get off my lawn! Stop! 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 I, I get it! Okay, how on earth did you get banned for life from the local soup kitchen? Well, remember the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew chapter 14? Yes, we all know the story. You don't mean to tell me. Well... Alright, Mildred, we have a large shipment of food that just came in. We need you to direct the men to put it where it all belongs. Right. Where do you want it all? Oh, sir, we don't need your food today. I'm just going to leave like Jesus and have God provide these people with food. What? If you don't mind me saying, but I think God provided all the food on this heavily laden truck. It's okay. My pastor had a vision that this would work. Well, that settles it. Men, we've got the wrong place. We thought this was a soup kitchen, but it turns out that this is a loony bin. Add out! Uh, Mildred, where's the food? Don't worry, this is all the food we need. That's just two Ritz crackers and three dead goldfish. I'm leading like Jesus. If you just give me a wicker basket, I'll lift it up and God will multiply it. The only thing that's going to multiply is the number of bruises on your face. Good gravy! That's not what you're supposed to be doing at all! But I'm supposed to... I know! You're supposed to lead like Jesus, but you've clearly took this too literally. And this last one about you making a whip from electrical cords and chasing the poor baristas from the coffee shop in the church foyer while screaming something about brood of vipers and uh, turning God's house into a den of robbers is, is taking it too far. Well... No! Not again! No more flashbacks! Why do you keep getting these anyway? Sunshine, open up. This is the police. We received an anonymous phone call from Biblical Repairman about you corrupting the youth and forcing them to do terrible things in the name of God. Curse you, anonymous caller! I can't go back to prison! You'll never take me alive, coppers! Um, does this mean our session is over?
This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Morning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor is not working his way through large swaths of scripture in depth. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith 2 into the world. You can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and that's based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank in our crew is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate, $24.95 a month. Master Gunner, $49.95 a month. Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us, by the way. More people that join our crew, it helps really level out um, our monthly support so we can properly budget and, and uh, if our expenses and, well, hopefully grow. We're trying to <clears throat> get to the next phase where we can expand our website into the next thing. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. Let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Here is a balance of today's lecture by Pastor Jeremy Rohde. Here we go. He comes and he grabs a hold of the stuff of creation, wraps it around himself, and says, you're coming with me, I'm fixing it, and it's going to get fixed my way and only by me. Hey, The rest of what you do... Good. I mean, should you should you feed the poor or and you know and and donate coats to to people? Yeah, 
Yeah, serve your neighbor. Give a cup of cold water. I mean, do whatever it is to serve your neighbor and yet realize that you're not thereby going to undo the curse, solve the problem, or else Christ came for nothing. Christ is the only one who can do that. So consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? I mean, the, the, the rhetorical question would be answered with a no one. Right? Except when Christ comes, you would say, He could. He could make straight what He has made crooked. Right? He can undo death. He can undo the curse. Romans 8, the futility that God has subjected the world to, he could undo that. And he does. Okay. That's an important verse. Um, In fact, we've already seen it in chapter 1, verse 15. It's an important uh, theme. And uh, we'll return to something like it here in the next few verses. So keep that in mind. Alright, now here is something we've done a lot of time in the past weeks talking about the difference between a theology of glory and a theology of the cross, a biblical theology, an understanding of suffering, sin, fall, curse, and an unbiblical, pseudo-Christian understanding of these things. And these two verses go together. You know, consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked, no one but God himself. And then look at this next verse that really gets to the point, verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. Now, that's a sentiment found all throughout the Scriptures, but it's one that's quite frankly alien to contemporary American Christianity. God just gives us the good stuff. He he gives us the good days. When adversity comes, who's behind it? Satan's behind it. Uh, Or I'm behind it, right? Some secret sin I did has brought this upon me. Or the world's behind it. It's just all these idiots we have to live with and endure. Right? Adversity gets laid at the doorstep of the individual, gets laid at the doorstep of humanity, gets laid at the doorstep of Satan, but never at the doorstep of God. Why? How impious. How unchristian. Right? How dare you say that the day of adversity comes from God? Except Solomon says this very thing well as the psalmist. And it's a, it's a biblical theology that we have to embrace. What it actually does for us is makes us realize that in the suffering that we experience, God is present in that. In fact, our Lutheran confessions call that the visitation of God. Which is a bizarre way of thinking. <laughs> okay? But it also gets to the, to the root of what Solomon says here in the day of adversity... Consider, think, meditate, dwell on. What do we do in the day of adversity? Pop a couple Tylenol. If that doesn't work, see what's in the liquor cabinet. If that doesn't work, go to bed. 
If that doesn't work, get distracted, try to move on, try to do... We don't stop and consider adversity at all. This is one of the bizarre blessings uh, of getting sick, is you lose your complete mental faculties, right? You're not yourself. You're not as sharp-minded as you... You have to pause and stop. You have to not be yourself. You have to not be busy. You have to take a break. Now, you can squander that opportunity, or with Solomon, you can consider, meditate, think on. Because just as there is, and remember the previous verses in chapter 7, just as uh, it is better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting, why? Because there's more wisdom there. It is better to have adversity and consider than to have prosperity and simply be joyful because there is a deepening, a learning. Now this is all uh, when this takes on a spiritual aspect, which of course it does. As soon as you realize that the day of adversity has come from God, as soon as you get rid of that lie that that it doesn't come from Him. See, if, if, if adversity doesn't come from God, then we've effectively pushed God out of the universe. And now he's somewhere out there, and I'm down here suffering, and I've got to pray that maybe he, from way out there, will come in and alleviate a little bit of my suffering. Right? It ends up being sort of like a theism that we fall into. But if God is the one who brings about the day of adversity, then God is suddenly near. And that means adversity or suffering suddenly becomes intensely theological intensely theological, a visitation of God. All right, now, when it's intensely theological, then we find ourselves in a state of prayer with the psalmist. We find ourselves crying out to God, why, how long, why have you rejected me, why have you turned your face from me? We find ourselves with Job, right? And in, our, and in the midst of our considering the day of adversity, we find ourselves coming up with all the answers that Job's friends come up with. Well, you've sinned. Well, you've not repented enough. Well, you know, you just need to be faithful through this. Well, God's teaching you something. Well, and all the same old excuses. And one by one, we see those fall away. All right? My claim on God isn't that I'm sinless or deserving of better or deserving of His grace or mercy. If I think that, then I've got some, something else spiritually wrong. But rather, my dialogue with Him is predicated upon His promises. Right? You've said no evil will come upon me. You've said you will protect me. You've said you are my Father. Is this how a father treats his children? You've said, you've said, you've said... It's a dialogue and it becomes an act of holding God to His promises. It's a dialogue that's based not on who we are or our worthiness, but upon who He is and His worthiness. This is all what it means to consider. God has made the one as well as the other. And in that then we also find a fear, a respect, an awe for the God who is so near to us. And Solomon hints at that when he says, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. 
In other words, that is God being God. And saying, here is your limit. I've set it. No different than I've set the limit of the ocean's proud waves. I set the limit of you and your knowledge and your experience. All right, so if we look at this verse in the whole, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. I don't want to skip over that because that also has been made by God. God has made the one as well as the other. So in the day of prosperity, be thankful. If it's, if it's because of your hard work, your many years of having your nose to the grindstone, not being distracted, well, who gave you that ability? Who gave you those talents? Who gave you those freedoms? Who supported you as you were going through it, etc., etc.? It's God. So in the day of prosperity, um, don't pat yourself on the back, but be joyful, for God has made that for you. He has made you prosperous, right? And of course, we don't have to look to the Bible. We can just simply open our eyes around us and realize that not everyone who works hard prospers. I mean, if that were true, the world would be a very different place. Not everyone who works hard prospers. So in the day of prosperity, be joyful because it's a gift from God. And subversively, in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So that means Monday morning adversity, (laughs) God has made it. How would He have you deal with it? How would His Son deal with it? What does the way of the cross look like when it takes on this specific form? Okay. um, That's fairly much a break. It's kind of a soft break. But the next, uh, verse 15, um, takes us in a different direction a little bit. So are there any uh, questions? Anything I can make clear? Paula? It's not really a question, but a comment, if you could correct me if I'm wrong. But you're making me think of 1984, where, you know, people are engineered from conception and so forth, and Brave New World, where the people who are living out in the desert someplace are the savages. And it reminds me of a film I saw just a part of years ago. I don't think it ever became well known, but it showed a perfect world where there was no pain, everybody was completely happy, and their lives were completely meaningless. Yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's, that's very true. Yeah, that's the fun of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes sort of teaches you how to be a savage in that respect. Or um, more familiar to me in my generation would be, uh, you know, the Matrix movie uh, with Neo where you know he takes the pill and you realize that the life you're living is not the life you thought you were living. And Ecclesiastes can have that sort of effect. It can make you all of a sudden wake up and realize that all these things I was pursuing because I thought that would be meaning and happiness, that's not actually where they lead. And you wake up to the reality that meaning and purpose and grounding and the essence of you, your life, your being is found not in the things of this world, but rather in the one who comes into this world, uh, incarnate in our flesh, our Lord Jesus. That's like, that's popping the pill, realizing that, you know, I don't, a, fr- a friend of mine, when we were uh, really young, we were like, uh, this is why I, I just love teaching 7th and 8th graders. 
their minds are, are very white and black, and that can be very helpful in theology and in seeing life. Um, as an adult, you realize there's more complexity to it and there's shades of gray, but the danger in that is you get lost and you say it's all gray. Well, as young kids, my friend and I, 7th and 8th grade, the way we looked at it, and we talked about this often, is we realized that um, to make the transition to adulthood, uh, certain behaviors were expected of you. You know, shake hands, look people in the eye, um, don't bring up anything offensive. When someone ha- asks you how you are, don't dare actually say how you are. <laughs> they don't want to know. Um, they they want to know that you're good. Right? And we saw a certain, a certain amount of phoniness to this, a certain amount of uh, necessity to this. Um, and we, we called it the game. Are you playing the game yet? Or, mom's calling, friends just came, i got to go upstairs and play the game. That's how we would talk about it. Okay? And there's a truth to that in the sense that the world in we are taught from a young age, we are brought into a world of phoniness, and part of playing the game is why? As a young person, you want to have good relationships with people, especially your parents' friends. Why? Networking. The future. you got to play the game. Do you really, really want to go shovel scum out of the gutters when you're in ninth grade just for a philanthropy? No. You want to do that because you can put it on your resume, and that's one more step closer to getting into a good school so that you can get a good job, so that you never have to shovel gutters again. Okay? There, there's, a, there's a certain construct of the way that you are supposed to behave in order to get ahead, in order to network, in order to have relationship with people. And from a 7th and 8th grade perspective, you can see very clearly that it's phony, that it's a game. Now as adults, you don't always see that because we've been playing so long it's become reality. It's become legit. Just become the way it is. What, are you not going to play the game? What are you talking about, Pastor Rody? What an immature thought. That's the adult way of thinking. Okay. Well, uh, Ecclesiastes helps us unearth some of that way of thinking and go back and see the thing for what it is and call the thing what it is. That's a healthier way. Okay. So the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is an earthy wisdom that says the nature of the human heart is it's deceitful above all things. It tells fibs. It tells lies. It creates realities that aren't real at all, and then it believes that they are reality and calls truths fictions. It's how twisted... So the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is meant to pop the blinders off your eyes and let you see things as they really are. Now, is that law or gospel? I don't know. I mean, there's law aspects to it, but there are gospel aspects to it too, because it's a gift. I mean, would you rather be sick unto death and delusionally think you're not? Or would you rather be sick unto death and say, yep, I am? Ecclesiastes is for folks who would rather know the truth, cold and hard as it may be. And the rest of the world that we make for ourselves is... uh, anti-Ecclesiastes, a world in which we try to hide or minimize the the harsh and hard realities. And I think our world is progressing that way. 
used to be that you would go to church and see a cemetery, right? Or that you drive down Main Street, like my little hometown. It's not so little anymore. But as you drive by, like one of the main drags, there's a cemetery. Where are the cemeteries here? Really hidden, aren't they? Carefully hidden. Yeah, and that's increasingly, that's increasingly so. I mean, that's just a phenomenon. So we want to create a world in which uh, death isn't anything and that death itself is a, rather than meditating on the sadness or harshness of the reality, we want to just flippantly turn it into a celebration of life and just a good time. Uh, which again, if that's in balance with the other, seeing the reality, then that's one thing. But to simply say, look, it's all happiness and it's all hidden and it's just the way it goes and let's just sing songs and have a beer and move on with life, that's sick. That's sick. So Ecclesiastes helps us uh, see the sickness of the delusion and see the truth underneath. Um, and with the truth underneath, then all of a sudden, what Christ has to offer becomes important. And if you go up to Christ will save you from death. Who cares? I mean, everybody dies. Death isn't a thing. Where's the cemetery? I haven't seen a cemetery. Death? Yeah, it'll happen to me sometime in the future. Christ's going to save me from that? Well, I'll think about it then. And, and so the whole lie we tell works over and against Christ who comes and says, I'll save you from death. Well, death isn't a big deal. When Ecclesiastes rips the blinders off us and shows us the game and shows us the lie and shows us what is, now all of a sudden I'll save you from death becomes of daily and intimate necessity. Now all of a sudden when you're sick, you, oh, I'll get over it, I'll pop some tile and I'll move on, I just have to get through this, you start to see, no, this is, in fact, this sickness is a foretaste of death. This sickness is mortality. And so as you're, enduring, as you're experiencing sickness then as the foretaste of death and as the curse from the hand of God, when Christ says, I've come to save you from death and from the curse, that means a little more, doesn't it? It's daily, it's intimate, it's everything. So as near as the curse is to you, so also that near will be the one who ends the curse. All right, verse 15. Pastor? In, yes? Did you have any thoughts on the last part of verse 14? None. Okay. No, just thought, just thought, skip over just thought I'd ask. Did I, oh, the, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him? I was just curious. Yeah, I, 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 I mentioned just a few things. Just thanks for uh, just, just a couple things that came to mind. And that's simply that God has ordained the days of prosperity for you and the days of adversity for you. Okay? Um, he has made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. That is a phrase and a thought that's been recurrent in Ecclesiastes. And the point is that if God is the one who is giving you the days of prosperity and adversity, how much power do you have? None. Now that's either terrible news or great news. <laughs> it's great news if you trust God. It's terrible news if you don't. But it simply sets the limitations, we human beings who put so much on our free will and our, our decisions and on my ability to pick myself by the bootstraps and make prosperity happen 
and God pours a bucket of cold water on that through Solomon, okay, that's humbling, and that God has set these limitations that He is the one who determines, makes it so that man is closed in, man cannot find out anything beyond himself, chronologically, you would say, man may not find anything that will be after him. God has set limits and bounds. And again, in the theology of Ecclesiastes, what is under the sun, what you see with your eyes and with your reason, is you are dead and you don't know anything after you. So these two things are the same. You're not in control of whether you have a good day or a bad day any more than you're in control of when you die. And you don't have knowledge of why one comes and why the day of adversity has come. You don't have any more understanding of that than why the day of joy has come, than why the day of death has come. And why? So that you won't find out anything after you. Why? Because God is simply saying, I'm God, you're not. Now the meditation on that, the Christian meditation on that contains profound wisdom. Um, the non-Christian meditation of that puts a foot down on the little gingerbread house we human beings make for ourselves. Right? I can build it. I can improve. I can do. It will be. This life will be good. I can, it's, you know, it's in my power. It's in my grasp. It's in my hands. And then the, the other illusion. It's, and it's, a, it's an illusion because we know better. We all know intellectually we're going to die. But something else takes over and bypasses that in our daily lives, to where even though intellectually we know we're going to die, we live and think and interact with people as if we won't. You know? And that, that has effects too when you look at the drudgery of life. I mean, even secular wisdom, how would you live today if you knew you were going to die tomorrow? Well, it changes everything, right? Yeah, it changes everything. We fall into the illusion, the way of thinking that well, this is just going to go on forever. So we get depressed, we get bitter, we get angry, we snap at people. But if you realized, via Solomon, that it's all going to end, okay, and you don't know when it is, and maybe tomorrow, maybe in a little while, but it's all going to end, and in the end it's all very short, well, that perhaps changes your experience, the way you look at life. You know, even just age can do that for you as you pass through jobs and and phases and everything else, you can say, this too will pass. This too will pass. And that's the wisdom we, uh, the older, pass on to the younger. You know, in the midst of their trials that seem like it's forever. This too will pass. Okay, so uh, this is God being God and setting down the limitations of human life, of human pursuit. Were you thinking anything more than that? Different? Okay. Verse 15, in my vain life. Don't you love this? Gotta love Solomon. In my vain, in my meaningless life, I have seen everything. <laughs> now this is great because this strikes at you know again one of the most shocking elements of a Christian book, of a biblical book, as you'd expect, right? None of these things work: wisdom, pleasure, greatness, even philanthropy. But what works is, I said religion. Never mind. What works is religion. Okay. <laughs> Nothing works except religion. And one of the most shocking things about Ecclesiastes is it says, no, religion doesn't work either. And we see that really driven home, I think, in these, in these verses. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his 
righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. So, the pursuit of... Uh, I visited a church and their whole theme, what we're all about, it said in big flash, transformed lives. You know, because Jesus said, go therefore into all, all ye nations and transform lives. <clears throat> So you transform your life and you become a righteous man. And then Solomon comes and says there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. It's true, isn't it? Okay. Be not overly righteous. <laughs> I wish I would have found this earlier in life. What were you thinking, son? I was thinking, don't be overly righteous. <laughs> be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? That is weird advice to find in a Bible. Don't be too good and don't be too smart. It's not going to work out well for you. Okay, verse 17. Here's the other hand. Be not overly wicked. It doesn't say don't be wicked. It says be not overly wicked. <laughs> Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Okay, so really rather shocking is the first part. Not so shocking is the last part. That's more conventional wisdom. But this, this first part is extremely shocking. It doesn't go well for people who are too righteous or too wise. It doesn't go well for people who are too wicked or too foolish. So here we have the middle ground. Again, we've seen the middle ground in wisdom. That's what I was explaining earlier today. And now we see the middle ground um, with righteousness and wisdom. Um, don't be too much righteous or too much wise. And on the other hand, don't be too much a fool don't be too much wicked. Okay? Both of these apparently, and Solomon's experience, end up in either destruction or dying before one's time. Now with the foolish, we see that. And the, the foolish and the sinful, you know, you see that's why. When uh, Bubba shows up on his motorcycle and wants to take your daughter out on a date, you close the door and don't let him. Right? Because, uh, you know, you don't want her to die before her time, being a fool. But now, on the other hand, not to be too righteous and not to be too wise. Have you met people who are too smart for God? I met lots of people who are too smart for God. That's exactly their problem. They're too smart for all that gospel crap. <laughs> Have you met people who are too good for God? Well, absolutely. Too righteous to need his forgiveness, to need his mercy? Oh, absolutely. The world is full of good people, or at least people who think themselves good. Right? The world is absolutely chock full of people who are too smart for God and who are too good for God. In fact, those might be the two biggest obstacles. That's why the cross is foolishness to the Greeks. Why? 
because they're too smart for God and a stumbling block to the Jews. Why? They're too righteous for God. Too smart for the cross, so the cross is foolish. Too righteous for the cross, so the cross is a stumbling block. Right? So now we see Solomon's wisdom directly applied uh, by St. Paul in the early chapters of Corinthians show us that the cross of Jesus is going to be foolishness for those who are too smart for it, and it's going to be a stumbling block for those who are too righteous for it. God's grace and forgiveness, uh, a God who comes in human flesh to bleed and die, to be condemned as a criminal, to die on the equivalent of, a, of an electric chair in an orange suit on national TV. That's all foolishness. God's mercy, His grace are all foolishness. Okay, that's what happens when you're overly righteous and you're overly wise. Solomon says, don't be that way. <laughs> don't be that way. Because why? You're going to miss out on everything. You're going to miss out on the one who is wisdom and yet clothes himself in foolishness. Who is righteousness and yet clothes himself as in unrighteousness, right? He had no sin and yet he becomes sin for us. All right, let's, uh, let's stop there and we'll pick up next week uh, in this paragraph, in this meditation, and we'll move on to the section about the treacherous woman. That's intriguing. This is the muse for so many jazz songs. Oh, jazz, no. No, blues, blues. Kenny G doesn't do this thing. This is blues, this is rock and roll, this is... Uh, you know, country, yes, exactly. The treacherous woman. All right, well, we'll see what he's talking about next week. The Lord be with you. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.